Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. As George mentioned, we've begun a new series, little books, big messages, and uh, this morning we're going to be in one of the littlest books. Uh, It's called Obadiah. And if you're using one of the Bibles that have been provided for you, it should be found on page 450 and 451. If you're not, you have a table of contents in the front of the Bible you may have. So Obadiah, starting in verse 1, he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done, To your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother, in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For, because... The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy 
and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word. All of it from Genesis to Revelation is living and active. And so we pray that you would cause this book of Obadiah also to live and to act within every heart gathered here this morning. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we sometimes miss things as Christians, things that you think would be rather basic to our existence as Christians, things essential to a Christian view of the world, things like the fact that you and I, Christian, have a king. We have a king. I just ask you this morning, is that a dominant feature of your day-to-day, that you have a king? Is it a dominant feature of your life? As for maybe an English person accustomed to a royal family, I don't know if you saw, but I believe there was a coronation somewhere over there across the sea this weekend. I imagine English folks have a hard time separating their existence as English subjects from that particular sovereignty. That sovereignty and that society are of a piece, they're always together, and just so, the society of the saved have a sovereign Savior that's to be unavoidably central, unavoidably integral to the society that we're supposed to be. We have a good and a gracious and all-glorious and an almighty king. And he's not any president. He's not any mere head of nations. His sovereignty is in no way so small as that. He's not limited. He's not time-sensitive in his sovereignty. His reign is not in any way perverted. It's holy and just. His earth is his footstool. The nations are like drops in a bucket. They're like grains of sand in his hand. His sovereignty traverses, it covers all time. It moves kings. It determines whole histories like that of Edom. It establishes steps of individuals along the way, meticulously encompassing everything from the roll of a dice to the cross of Jesus Christ. He's our creator and savior king. And yet, one thing we have to reckon with as his people is that his reign is not universally recognized. It's not recognized by all peoples, at least not yet. That's why he taught us to pray a most basic prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Because it's not here on earth yet as it will be in heaven. So let it be like that. As it is in heaven, so on earth. But in that, there is this acceptance. Things aren't always going to go swimmingly. Things are not always going to go sweetly for loyal subjects of His kingdom. But even when they don't, there is a sweetness in His sovereignty over against our own sovereignty that stabilizes us while His will is done. 
One of the things that we have to know as Christians in this world is that things as they are today aren't as they will be forever. The kingdom is the Lord's. And He is seeing that we are cared for and loved and brought all the way home to Him. And with that, we come to Obadiah and this humble servant of the word of our King. If this Obadiah here isn't the Obadiah in 1 Kings chapter 18, as seems probable, then we don't know much about this one. We don't know much about this one. We know that his name is actually a title. Obadiah means the servant of the Lord. And in that capacity, his burden is to serve the comfort of God's people in a time of distress, in a time of despair. So amid God's judgment at the hand of their enemies, Obadiah does not prophesy what might be popular. It's not, hey, all hands on deck, let's go get Edom. Deuteronomy 18.20, if you remember this from a week ago, is very, very operative for this Obadiah. If you don't speak what's true to me, there are going to be consequences. So, Obadiah's burden is to speak the truth. His vision is simply the Word of God for the people of God. And that Word is not, well, all of this hardship isn't from the Lord. These things that have overcome us in this moment is not from the Lord, so let's go and trust in our non-sovereign God. That's not the word. It isn't, this is from the Lord, so we can't turn to Him. He seems to be against us, and so instead of trusting in Him, we need to go and find something else to cling to, something else to hope in, trust in. We need to hope elsewhere. In both cases, that's where an arrogant man, a so-called servant of the Lord, might have gone against the Word of God. Against the Word of God for the people of God. But instead, this humble servant to the word of our king draws out the intention of our trials. It's an intention that we always need to keep in front of us as believers in Christ. The intention of our trials is keep on looking to the king. Keep on looking to the sovereign over all these things. Trust our God. He is good. He is gracious. He is faithful. He's still true. Hope in him. So Obadiah's message is not a look at me message. It is a look to God message. And it's likely that this wasn't the only sermon he ever preached. We don't know, just a guess really. But in our study of John Knox from a couple of weeks ago, we found it striking that a man known for his powerful preaching had but one surviving sermon. And the lesson in that is the same as it is here. For all he might have done in service of the Word of God, only one little specimen, 21 verses, met the criteria of Scripture. I can hear Obadiah maybe saying, really, Lord? I feel like I preached a couple of home runs once in a while. I felt I had a few Isaiah 53s in me. And this is the one you want? This is your inerrant word for your often erring people, your needy people for all time. Okay, I trust you. I bow to your wisdom. I bow to your word. You are the king after all. The lesson is about a humble readiness to serve the Lord however He sees best. Not every prophet is Isaiah, at least not on the page. Not every preacher, as you well know, is Piper or Spurgeon or Bunyan or Knox or Chrysostom or John the Baptist, at least not in notoriety. Not every church member is whoever the most notable church member is, at least not publicly. But are we each and every one of us ready to serve? That's the question. Are we ready to serve at our king's bidding? However he sees best. And more specific to our text, are we each and every one of us putting ourselves under the will of God for our lives, whatever that is, 
with the clear goal, so goal here, of serving the faith of the king's people in the king's message to the king's glory. Let him be known. Let his people be consoled. Let them be comforted, even if we are little known and eventually forgotten. If you go over there to the cemetery, you're going to find that there are some graves out there that have been forgotten. People, bodies, buried there. They've been forgotten. Quickly forgotten. I just want to say to you, Christian, as you serve the Lord in this world for life unto death, you will not be forgotten by your king. I trust that Obadiah, this humble servant of the word of our king, knows this perfectly, presently, in heaven. Have you boiled down your life to that very basic question? Whether you're a father, mother, teacher, student, athlete. I know we have some mathletes in here as well. Senior engineer, child at play. How, as a Christian first, can I serve the word of my king for the good of his people today? Who can I encourage in the Word of God? Who can I comfort with the Word of God? Who can I secure in the truth of the Bible? Who can I exhort by the Word of God? Who can I refresh in the Word of God? Who can I lead by the Word of God to the King? Well, Obadiah has his heart set on Judah. It appears they've been recently defeated and dispossessed by a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Might have heard of him. Nebuchadnezzar, these Babylonians. And it appears also that they've been aided and abetted by a brother nation called Edom. And Edom is descended from Esau, whom you may know as Jacob's older brother whom Jacob spent a life outwitting and besting. And so the sibling rivalry was real in Isaac's house. And what began in the womb spread like dye in water to the nations that developed from those two folks, those brothers. There's a sense in which Edom was so constantly antagonistic to Israel and Judah that they become a metonym, if you want to New word for the day, a metonym for the enemy of God and his people. So what that means is you could call any enemy of God's people, any enemy of God and his people, from Pharaoh to Haman to Caiaphas to Paul at one time, to Bloody Mary, to your argumentative classmate, an Edomite at heart. Edomite at heart. It's all getting at how incessant an opponent Edom was to the people of God. They were a brother nation that, to sour it even worse, acted not at all like a brother, but rather in atheistical, here's the word, pride. And fresh off the most recent expression of it, Obadiah, for Judah's sake, warns all the world about our king's ability to humble his enemies. In fact, you see in verses 1 to 4 that it's the Lord himself who alerts us to this. Edom has made her allies. Edom operates advantageously among the mountains. Judah has fallen and Edom has helped in their falling, thinking, quote now from the passage, In the pride of their heart, who will bring me down to the ground? I can act in my own interest to the hurt of God's people, and there will be no repercussions for it. We are safe. We are secure in our misdeeds, in our transgressions, in our sins. We're safe in those things. And the Lord says, that is not true. That is not true. The pride of your heart, verse 3, has what? 
deceived you. You're living falsely. You're acting arrogantly as if I'm not the king of kings in covenant with my people. So, in verses 1 to 2, God sends a messenger, quote unquote, among the nations. Okay? This God of Israel, our God, is no regional God. He's not a God who is confined to like South Carolina or the South generally or even the West. He's not a regional God. He's the Lord of all. And that means He's able to incline the heads of all nations apparently to do His bidding in the world. Edom thought she was a sovereign state. But she's going to find out, quite to the contrary, that the only true sovereign is the God of the Bible. The only true sovereign is the God who is favorably manifest in the remarkable history of her nearest rival. So that's the first thing. God is able to move nations such that one civilization is collapsed never to rise again. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. They rise and they fall, and through it all, on one side and the other, God's kingdom is forever. God owns the guiding hand of history. And with those hands, He also possesses this attribute of omniscience. Let me just ask us a question this morning. Why do we do the underhanded things we do? Just think back through the course of your life. Why do we make deals under the table? Why do we shake hands in the dark? Why do we sin so very shamelessly? The answer is pride. Pride of heart. Sin, if it does anything, convinces us, as it does whole nations apparently, like Edom, that we can do things our way because, listen now, because there is no God to say otherwise. We can do things our way because there is no God to say otherwise or to see the truth or if seeing it either cares enough to say anything about it or even if he does, is powerful enough, sovereign enough, serious enough to carry out his word against it or do anything about it. Sin tells us we are secure in our sin. There are no consequences. There is no condemnation. The gospel says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sin preaches to us a different story. There is no condemnation because there is no God to contend with. So sin it up, for there is no God to bring you down. And again, God says, that's not true. First thing is, God knows our hearts. God learns nothing. His knowing is not contingent upon occurrence. He's not like you and me. God knows everything. He knows us inside and out, first to last, and with accountability. Edom acted in ignorance that God is not ignorant. God sees, God knows, He records, and He humbles. If you exalt yourself, you need to be warned and you need to be prepared. God is the only God. So that if you persist, as Edom has, thinking, I am safe in my sins, there is no height from which God above cannot cut me down, you're going to be in trouble. Just ask Nebuchadnezzar. Walking out on his balcony. Look how great my kingdom is. And immediately he became a beast of the field. Or just think on the irrecoverable destruction of Edom. You know that Edom is no more. 
and Edom was no more. Listen, within a few years of this word going out from Obadiah's mouth. Now, Edom probably saw that as a socio-political event. But Obadiah doesn't want us to believe that for any one second. We're to see such things with a worldview that's given by God Himself. There is a seeing sovereign behind the curtains humbling the proud on behalf of His people. That's Obadiah. Edom's nest, however high it was, was brought down by God. And so where, friend, is your safety this morning? What have you made your security in life and death? I hope it's not the American dollar. Everything I've heard about that recently is just going to garbage. That's not a political thing. Sorry. But, uh, but regardless, whatever the... If, is it the American dollar? Is it policies? Is it politics? I mean, I hope your trust is not in the help of rather unstable people. I hope it's not in the deception of sin. That there is no God with which to contend, sin on, good sinner. There is no security against God in all man's pride. There is only security in the humility that takes this king to be your rock. Takes this king to be your boast. This king to be your salvation. This king to be all your sufficiency. But regardless, everyone needs to know our king is able to humble his enemies. And ultimately, this kind of divine humiliation, this kind of divine humiliation, is the least of Edomite worries. Our king has a day, it says in the text, for humbling our enemies. What we get in verses 5 through 16 is an historical judgment for specific sins that will not be fully repaid until the day of the Lord. So again in verse 10, you see that God sees. He tells us exactly what Edom did. He tells us why they'll be destroyed. And as we get into it, it proves no less relevant for you and me today. Edom did violence to God's people. Here, to Jacob, to Judah. When the Babylonians besieged and deported Judeans, Edom not only failed to help their brother, they joined in this God-awful massacre that was going on as mercenaries who were profiting off of the remains. They're like leeches or parasites or buzzards that delighted to lead the predator, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, to the prey, Judah, just so that they could have the leftovers, just so that they could pick the carcass of God's people clean. That's what's going on here. They saw Judah strangled of life, and they gloated in it. Again, on social media too much recently. But you spend a little bit of time there, you're going to see a whole lot of people gloating in things like Christians being shot in Nashville. Gloating in it. Okay? Well, that's not new. Edom did this with Judah. Okay? They gloated in it. They rejoiced, as we are wont to do, all of us, in our rivals' trouble whenever we see people that have given us a hard time falling into hard times. We're kind of like, good. They boasted in it. Finally, Judah has gotten what they deserve. And again, they were opportunistic with it. With defenses down and resistance crushed, they looted God's people. They refused them safe harbor or passage. And in fact, it seems that they hunted down all of the survivors from Jerusalem on behalf of the destroyers. They hunted them down. And when they caught them, they were like, here you go, Babylon. And so Edom, in doing all of this, secured, though they didn't know it, their own destruction. 
some part of that is described, foretold in verses 5 to 10. And again, just to be short with it, God will turn the tables on them. He'll make them bereft, bereaved of all their resources, all their allies, all their peace, all their wisdom, all their might, all their manliness, verses 5 through 10. The only thing that God is going to leave to Edom is a cover of shame and a little book called Obadiah to tell the whole world what happened to them and why and by whom. And quickly, one more decisive blow against all earthly securities. You really ought to meditate on verse 7. I love that. Save verse 7 and you know, turn of the page and all this kind of stuff. It's wonderful. You look at the book. Good. Those that they thought their friends, allies in their time of trouble, are joined in furthering their destruction. Earthly allies, earthly allies, are just as likely to end you as defend you when push comes to shove. And that, as Jesus knew, at a shockingly small price. Because life is cheap to fallen man. Verse 7 is the epitome of stabbed in the back, betrayed by a kiss, and all these kind of things. Oh, to have a friend that you can trust. Oh, to have a deliverer that you can actually count on. Friends, God is able to turn every earthly power that you thought a surety into a sudden and unexpected enemy. Like how many times do we have to see it? How many times do we have to see Judas kiss Jesus? Full barns, fail us in a moment. Justices wrong us, do injustice. The look of health suddenly deceive us and we fall apart. How many times do we have to see our own souls vex us? before we learn to trust our well-being, both temporal and eternal, to the rock of Israel. To the God of the Bible. The one who bled and died to save you from your sins. How long until we grasp those words of Charles Spurgeon, how, quote, the gospel of Jesus Christ best supplies the needs of every age, every person, every city, every state, every nation. If you want to rock, and I know every single one of you do, you only have it in Jesus Christ. Now, see also that most repetitive phrase in this section. Do not, do not, do not. At the end of the day, why did God humble Edom and erase them from the world? Because they displayed an unrepentant pattern of persecuting the people of God. That's it. They treated God's people devilishly, gloating and boasting and looting and aiding in their destruction. Their pride was very specific. Pride can be manifest in all sorts of ways. Theirs in this text is very specific. We can oppose God's people successfully. We can oppose God's people without consequences. We can oppose God's people without fear. So, I just want us all to see that the people of God have an almighty, strong defender. Yes, Judah fell, 
but Edom was cut off from the face of the earth forever. It is a most dangerous thing for your soul to endanger the bride of Christ. And no, I did not misspeak there. You see, as the Bible progresses, so do the people of God, our understanding of the people of God. We move from an ethno-religio-political people with a few believers sprinkled in from time to time to a Christocentric body of believers from all the world. That's why as you read the New Testament, things originally said of Israel are then fulfilled in Jesus. And then in so many ways, finally attributed to the body of Christ. It's why in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, which we'll come to at some point this year, later this year, Paul calls the Gentile churches of Galatia, the Gentile churches of Galatia, the Israel of God. As we saw all throughout John, believers in Jesus are the true people of God. We are the goal of of the Bible when it comes to the people of God. And so these verses apply to us. They say to our enemies, beware. Not of us, by the way. But of our God, ultimately. If you don't repent, absolutely. You may not care about the church. And many Christians may also act like they don't care about the church. But I cannot stress this enough. I feel like we stress it every week because it has to be. But God cares about His people. God cares about the church. God is the husband of His people. And He is committed, He's covenanted to avenging all of our sorrows at the hands of all of our enemies. We don't hear a lot of that, but it's here. There is a day, verse 15. We know that it's going to be a day of wailing for the enemies of God, even as it's a day of perfecting consolation and comfort for all who have trusted in Christ. So here at this point, verse 15, Obadiah goes eschatological, meaning God mobilizing the nations to wipe out Edom as a people in this world, again, is the least of their worries. It's the least of their troubles, their anxieties. The worst we all deserve to face is God rescinding Jesus to judge the sins of the living and the dead according to the standard of His own perfect obedience to God. Edom falling from the face of the earth is nothing in comparison to Edomite souls falling into the everlasting wrath that they've stored up for themselves by their own sinful lives. There's a passage in Romans 12. It's very important. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And while that word is meant to exhort Christians to love our enemies to Jesus, it's also meant to urge our enemies. You need to consider your life. You need to consider your life. How have you related, not just to God up there, pie in the sky somewhere, but to the God of the Bible, the God who is concretized in His people and in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the principle in that day, verse 15. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. So friend, listen. You never once sin in this life without setting a ricochet of eternal judgment in the direction of your own head. You do not drink in the reverie of an enemy of God. Let me celebrate my rebellion over and over and over again. You do not get drunk on sin without God promising you, 
you will drink of my justice and will be forced to swallow it. If you're sitting there right now thinking, that's not very loving, I beg to differ. To let you know the eternal trouble that's in front of you, if you have not yet believed in Christ, is the most loving thing that a person can do for you. If we didn't really believe in these things, we wouldn't do that. So unbelieving friend, listen, you will not get away with a life lived against God. You will not get away with a life at enmity with His Word or with His Gospel or with His people. It will amount to something ultimately that as soon as you you taste of it, all your desire forever will be for one more second on earth. If only to trust in Christ. But at that time, you will not be able any longer. The tragedy in Obadiah is not the loss of Edom, ultimately. It's the loss of the lost. And on the contrary, his ultimate consolation is not the Judean recovery of Mount Zion a few decades later. It's the vindication of his people when we see our king face to face. We may be racked with pain in this world. We will be racked with pain in this world. But the consolation of the redeemed ever abides. We will see our King in all His beauty. And it will be enough. (laughs) It will be enough. Every sorrow will be healed. Every tear wiped away. Every one of them. Can you imagine? Every perplexity resolved. Every cause for concern, whether disappointment or despair or disease or death or devil, all of it will be over and all will be well with our souls. Our King has a day for humbling all our enemies. And yet, in verses 17 to 21, the final note of Obadiah, as one might expect of godly preachers, is that of hope in grace. you got to hear that. Day of the Lord. That's a terrifying prospect. And right on the heels... Let me tell you about people who get to escape. These final verses are about our king's humility. Our king's humility in establishing his kingdom. A time is promised, verse 17, when in Zion there will be those who escape the wrath of God that we deserve. And there will be a city, a congregation, an assembly of holy people who act as a fire. God let it be clearing the land of Edomites, whether by exposure to the Word of God, to the Gospel, as an historical type of what's to come for us. These Judean exiles will repossess the promised land at a time when Edom, their arch enemy, will be no more. So Edom may be laughing now as Judah weeps, but saviors, he says, verse 21, will rule Esau from Zion And how does this book end? The kingdom shall be the Lord's. What's in the background for so many will come to the foreground for all one day. And you better make peace. You better make peace then with the King of Kings. God is going to rule Enmity is finally futile, and you will pay for it. The wages of sin, Romans chapter 6, is death. And that death is not just death, it's hell. And maybe the rebel inside of you right now says, because of sin's resistance in your soul, 
Well, if that's how God is, so be it. I don't have anything to do with it. And I just want to tell you, that inner rebel in you is a fool. Especially when the very same God has made a way of escape. We've been in Esther with our youth group the last few weeks. I just tell you, if you sin against that king, you sin against Ahasuerus, there's no grace. Your life is over. You die. There's only bad news. No good news. In fact, we just consider ourselves for a moment, when someone sins against you, when someone sins against me, I wonder, is grace your, our initial inclination, or is it all a steaming stew of unrighteous wrath, impatient to spill over and consume the enemy? God, I'm delighted to say, is not like us. Hallelujah. He is obviously just, but He is also surprisingly gracious. He is the judge of sinners, but He is also the Savior of sinners. And that's no more plain for all to see than in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Him, God, the Son, the King, proved Himself humble. Infinitely humble. He became a human being, lived under God's law. He stayed obedient to it his entire life, suffered our enmity against Him, bled out on the cross, bore the wrath of God that was against sinners like us, died in our place, and accomplished, procured salvation for all who turn from their sins and believe in Him. Jesus was a carpenter. He wasn't anything like they would have expected Him to be. He was no great king in their eyes. Oh, but in God's eyes. And in the eyes of His people. Jesus was a carpenter. From Nazareth. It's like nowhere. It's like, I don't want to say six mile. I'm just kidding. My wife is from six mile. He was just a preacher. He was a preacher of the then present kingdom. He enters in upon his ministry, and what's the message? Repent. Why? The kingdom of God is at hand in me. Jesus was one who rode a donkey, not a mighty war horse, into Zion, only to be crowned with thorns and cast out of it to save his people, Edomites at heart as we all were from our sins. And there, there, when the kingdom could not look any bleaker, there the kingdom was established. The kingdom is the Lord's. But the surprising message then is this. You can come just as you are. The Edomite can come. You can enter And you must enter while there's still room. There is a way of escape from the ricochet of all that you've done. You just make Jesus your trust. Don't let your own pride hold you back from Christ. Turn from your sins and you will find a friend, a savior, a king that you can actually trust, you can actually count on. You hope in Jesus. And as He has done, will be awarded to you. You'll be forgiven. You'll be counted righteous with a perfect righteousness. You'll be crowned with eternal life. And you'll be made a full part of that everlasting people of God 
that maybe even to this point in your life, you wanted to have nothing to do with. (laughs) Oh, I'd encourage you to become part of the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ right now. Dear ones, listen, the, the kingdom of kingdoms belongs to our Lord who loves and cares for us. Obadiah would have us comforted and consoled right there and the rest of God's word only strengthens the consolation. Things as they are today aren't as they will be forever. The great Savior has gone up to Zion above at this point. And we, however exiled in this world for His sake, shall yet then possess His land. It's all very basic. It's all very basic. We have, by grace, a King. This King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray and praise the Lord for it. Oh God, we thank You. We thank You for Obadiah. We thank You for his service to You. We thank You for his service to us and all Your people all over the world for all time. And we ask now that you would get glory for yourself in consoling your people. And we pray in calling your people to yourself. In Jesus' name.